And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, <clears throat> going to do, I think this is the second time we've done this. Uh, back by popular demand. Had a lot of had a lot of requests to do this again. And I, uh, I always look, this is one of my favorite interviews to do. It, it's me working with two partners of mine. Guys that have helped me immensely uh, in my career and, and currently helped me immensely in my career. And uh, so without further ado, we'd like to introduce them both to you. You know them, they're frequents, but Mr. Chase Taylor of Pinecone Macro Research. Chase, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, pleasure as always. Um, don't sound too excited, pal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then also by uh, the, my, my, the quan of quantitative investing, at least for me, to, to, to steal a, a t- some terminology from Cuba Gooding Jr., uh, circa Jerry Maguire, right? It's the ambassador of Quan. This is the ambassador of the Quan on the quantitative side. Mr. Marcos Bueno, who runs our algorithmic portfolio. Marcos, thank you for being with us, pal. Thank you, Zach. You're too kind. Well, I don't know. My wife might disagree. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I really appreciate you guys both taking the time to uh, to do this. Last time we did it, uh, it got great responses, and a lot of people asked us to do it again. And the reason I like to have this threesome on is that, um, you know, I think all, you know, especially you guys have got a lot of overlapping talents and abilities, but um, we all focus on different areas. And I think that, you know, those three outlooks and we've seen the results, though, having those three different perspectives has helped us a lot. So I uh, wanted to just first start off kind of a year in review. Um you know, what, what you each kind of, you know, just a, a, a little missive, if you will, on, on what you make of the year, what you saw, the things that surprised you, the things that went according to plan, and uh, kind of start there. And then obviously we'll get into where we see things heading next year. But Chase, why don't you first take it on the, on the macro side and kind of give us some highlights of what you've seen this year and, and, and what you think played the biggest role in, you know, where we are. Sure. So the year, thankfully, kind of went uh, largely as I, I expected coming in, I, I kept calling for an inflationary boom in 2021. And I think that's, that's pretty much what we had. You know, we, we had more inflation than policymakers saw coming, which wasn't particularly difficult to, to imagine at the end of 2020. Uh, but at the same time, you know, most people that were predicting inflation were, were predicting it to be stagflation and not getting much growth, but we, but we had really robust growth. The economy did great. And, uh, I, I did a Twitter poll a few months back about where people saw uh, the unemployment rate at the end of the year, and a- almost nobody had it, you know, at four un- under four percent. And there's a good chance we end the year under four percent. I think that kind of goes to show how strong the economy's been. Obviously, you know, it's not been great for everybody because inflation is is high, and that's that's definitely eating away at at purchasing power. But at the same time, you know, having having the growth that we've had and the, and the comeback that we've had in, in, in the labor market this fast has been significant. Uh, markets have responded. Uh, obviously, almost everything had a good year, especially with liquidity to the way that it was. But we also had some, some kind of rolling bubbles that blew up along the way or things that, you know, maybe flatline like the kind of crazy SPAC bubble that kind of came and went. Same with a lot of the kind of unprofitable tech that has has struggled. So, um, from an energy perspective, I don't want to get deep into that. That pretty much went largely, you know, I, I think is, as you would imagine again, like a year ago, look, looking forward with, 
oil inventories can just drawing down considerably globally the entire year. Um, natural gas obviously has come off the boil in the U.S. in the last few weeks, but has had a, a very strong year. Uh, commodities in general yeah, have, have been really strong. It, it, it was the kind of year where it was, it was difficult to lose money as an investor, almost no matter what you were doing, um, which, I, you know, l- looking forward, is probably not going to be that easy. But, yeah, that's that's kind of how I would capture 2021. It, it, it was easy in a lot of ways. But, man, there were a lot of zigs and a lot of zags and tricky market rotations. The other thing, too, is that, um, you know, you look at the art type stuff, uh, you know, that's – that's the first time in the last several years where I can think of that stuff drastically underperforming, right? And it did. Do you make anything of that, Chase? Do you think it's I, – I mean, the reason I pay attention to that – well, there's a lot of reasons. But when you get markets that are that frothy and, and price movements that make so little sense, it tends to kind of reach a zenith at the peak. And that really kind of feels, especially in those types of names, the crazy high-flying tech stocks – it, it feels to me like we've hit that, um, you know, and, and it's probably going to fake you out because there's going to be brutal rip your face off bear market rallies when that thing finally tips over. Where do you think we're on that? Um, and, 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 you know, what do you make of that? The first year, you know, do, are we, would I be making too much of it? You think that stuff's got a rebound in it or, and, and again, we're, we're, we're speculating here, especially when we talk about an individual type of stock, but do you think that's over or, or how are you reading that? No, I, I don't think it's over. Um, I, to, to me, again, that like the arc, the arc side specifically wasn't like the the incredibly overvalued, you know, largely profitless, you know, innovative companies. That that having issues wasn't super surprising to me. Um, what what will probably be forever surprising to me outside of thinking about it through the the passive lens is is just the the mega cap tech just refusing to ever essentially stay down for for very long that that has caught me by surprise i thought that stuff could struggle more but um i i think arc uh and and this you know the, the stuff in their portfolio and and, and similar equities ha- having problems is not not particularly shocking and and i like you say i think i think we'll have significant rallies but i i think it'll it'll struggle to you know, go make new highs anytime soon. And, and, you know, unless Kathy Wood's right and you get a big nasty deflationary wave and a ton of monetary p- policy to, to try and to try and fix it. Outside of that, as a scenario, I, it's going to, I don't see it really making new highs any anytime soon. And it, it's kind of crazy looking back, but it was February that that peaked. And w- when that happened, you know, it, it, it just went straight up and then just obviously collapsed and gave up a ton of value in just three weeks time so yeah i i think that 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 trend continues i think you'll kind of keep putting in lower lows and, and lower highs and I, I think it'll struggle and probably go back to closer to like 50 dollars than 100 where it's at now or just under 100 yeah i was looking at the price or looking at the chart on tesla over the last six months and that's an impressive rally today but it looks like it just bounced up right enough to meet that resistance line that downtrend line um I would not cut. I would not consider myself, and you both will probably laugh when I say this. I would not consider myself a technical analysis wizard by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, crayon, crayons on notebook paper is is, is a good chart for me. But um, it 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 does look like that. The other one that I, we talked about it last week on the show, and I think people make too much of this kind of stuff. But it was really interesting comparing a chart of Arc. 
uh, in the last year to the NASDAQ circa 99, 2000. Uh, I'm sure you've all seen that chart uh, uh, circulating around, but it it is pretty striking, is it not? I mean, Chase, I know you're big on the technical analysis side. When you see charts, when you see similarities in charts like that, how do you view that? Is, is, do you, would you chalk that up just kind of coincidence, or, or do you think that there's more information to be, got, to, to be had from that chart? So I, I use analogs a little bit, but I'm not a big fan of them. I, I think there's, there's just significant kind of overfitting mm-hmm. bias in, in running those, those analogs. But at the same time, like at times, they can be useful. I think one that I've used uh, in, in the last kind of year or two that kind of just for whatever reason keeps working is – energy versus versus tech mm-hmm. uh that that has actually followed a somewhat similar path um I, I think i think they they make sense to try to help you make sense of the world but i think trying to kind of trade off of them that that's something i, I don't i don't really think makes a lot of sense but as far as that analog goes i think there are a lot of similarities to 2000 uh i think everyone's always looking for the next 2008 you know the next real major crisis but i think 2000 to compared to now is a better analog so yeah from that standpoint it, it, it's useful sure seems to it sure seems that way from my point of view marcos um what do you kind of give us your year in summary coming at it from a different perspective obviously you know i know you're a student of markets and a student of economy you know economics in general and i know you're looking at other things but obviously the majority of your time is tied up you know managing the algorithm um but from an interesting movement on the algorithm this year and it's funny because I, I remember when you and I started uh, working together, we talked about one of the things that we spent the most time talking about is in what type of environment will the algorithm struggle? Now, it's still sitting on double-digit gains for the year. So <laughs> considering the unbelievable performance it's had over the last two and a half years, um, you know that to me is just a well-deserved breather. But um, it has been different. You know, it, it, and, and this is exactly the type of environment where we're like, hey, it'll probably, ta- you know, probably have a tough time catching on. C- kind of give us a summary of the year from your perspective, from the quantitative side, and, and, and specifically through the eyes of the algo and, and what you saw as uh, occurring and, and what you noticed and, and maybe what struck you, um, you know, it, it, what you learned from it or and what you see going forward kind of from the from the quantitative side. Yeah, sure. Um, so, Chase, you, you made me feel a little dumb, um, I have to say, because uh, I found this year very, very difficult. Um, and what is funny is that back in August of 2020, I had an interview there that I said, I think we're going to have bigger growth, higher growth than people expect, and we're going to have more inflation, which is exactly what happened. And then in December of 2020, just before the year started, I basically put a tweet out there saying um, the innovation the innovation stocks are going to go down soon, basically. Uh, and that was 2021. So all these, things, all these three things happened, and yet I find the year very difficult to trade uh, in the market. And I think that this has been, at least in the hedge fund side, it's been tricky, right? Um, if you tell me, if you had told me that inflation was going to be at 6% and yields are going to be 1.5%, I wouldn't have believed it, right? Yeah, that's fair. So uh, so that is was, I mean, you get the the macro numbers correct, but you get the wrong, the trade very, very wrong. And I think a lot of hedge funds blew up doing that. Uh the other one I was very convinced at the beginning of the year um, 
was that all this environment will be positive for energy. That came out to be true. But I was highly have high conviction that the concentration of market caps in the bigger names will decrease. And then we will see, let's say, the equal weighted indices outperforming the market cap weighted indices. I really thought that the big caps will struggle. And then all the sort of like smaller caps, basically everything else except the top 20 names will do better. And it actually was the opposite. Mm. And my view was based on higher growth, higher um, inflation, and that should basically take some of the concentration away from the big names and it actually didn't happen. And that, I think, was one of the things in the stock market that was the most difficult is that so much of the performance was concentrated on the top five to 10 names and everything else was kind of struggling. Um, if we look at the sectors across the board, if you look at IWMs or like a, an example of, of the small caps, they've been in a wide range throughout the whole year. That made trading very, very difficult. And that pattern is repeated across a lot a number of different sectors, except the QQQ-like sectors. Now, if you didn't pick those five to 10 names, and in the algo, generally speaking, does not pick those, uh, the year was complicated. It was very, very choppy. And even on the things that I got very right, which is ARC innovation trade, things are going to go down throughout the year. It actually happened, but it wasn't an easy trade by any means. Uh, because as Chase was saying, it was up 20-something percent by February, and then it came down, and then it rallied. It had a number of 30% rallies throughout the year. That is very, very difficult to trade. Yeah. Um, so I actually quite found it very challenging as a year. Uh, and the algo didn't do as well as the previous years because the market uh, called wolf many times. And, it, and, the, and the wolf didn't show up, right? And the algo, by its nature, it will always retreat when it senses danger, right? Uh, because the wolf one day will show up, and then you don't want to be there when it happens. So every time somebody shots wolf, it will retreat. And the market did that many, many times this year. Uh, so that, that, that made the algo go in and then get out, go in and then get out. Um, I'm okay with it. That's part of the thing. It's like one day... Uh, the danger will materialize and we will be out and we'll be safe. Um, but sometimes when there is a fake alert or false alarm, uh, then the, that becomes very complicated. So the algo didn't enjoy the year as much as it enjoyed the other years. Um, going forward, my view for next year is that the big indices are going to see a similar year than what the Russell did this year, which is a very broad range in a sideways market. That for the algo should be better than this year because um, if it's a flat, it will be less exposed. Um, it will be able to be more granular in get less false signals in the individual stocks. And I think that this dynamic that we have right now where the Fed is supporting the market in one side, still printing quite a lot of money, uh, $100 billion a month current rate, which is a lot. I think it, it will come down with the taper to potentially 90 or 80, but still that's a ton of money. 
What did they so start, Marcos? What did they start QE with when we were backing away? Well, I mean, they, we, we started it with like 25 or 30 billion, if I remember correctly. No, it was something like five to seven. Yeah, right. I mean, minuscule. Now we don't even balk at 100 a month. I mean, it, it sounded really big that then. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that was back when a billion dollars actually meant something. Yeah. So, so, uh, so there is that is that support. Um, and then on the other hand, I think the winds have changed and there is a real concern about inflation. Uh, from a political perspective, I think uh, there is no longer a political support for having markets higher. And I think the real concern politically is the inflation and how that looks. So I think now it's more politically expedient to fight inflation. So we have what I call the two-fed face. I mean, two-face two fed for on one side supporting, on the other one not supporting. So that is sort of like conflicting forces. In terms of market participants, I think there are two cohorts of investors, the ones that are very, very bullish, no matter what, permeable. And then there's others that are constantly calling for uh, a collapse, a crash, bear market is the end. I think the participation of the retail investors that made uh, 2020 so difficult sometimes, excuse me, 2021 so difficult sometimes will continue. But uh, I don't think we're going to see a crash that takes them out of the market like it happened in the, in the year 2000 because of the support from the Fed, those 80 billion to 100 billion a month, that's a lot. Um, but I think the valuations and the extra inflows are not there to take the market much higher. So that that will create sort of like a sideways market like we had in the Russell. That's sort of like my base case scenario. Obviously, my views don't matter to what I do. What I what I do really is connected to what the market actually does. So if the market does something else, I will do something else. But from a macro PM perspective, I think this is a potentially likely scenario for next year. Um, that would the thing that that would be the thing that makes the most people uncomfortable and the markets have a way of getting into that he will do whatever hurts the most and i think that given how the setup that we have right now that's what it would hurt the most yeah i <clears throat> going back to what you said marcos i i to me it was a it was a two it was a market of two tails um i felt really smart in the first two and a half three months of the year um because we were really calling for uh, a stall out in a lot of the tech stuff, uh, some contraction on the multiple side of things, and that we thought, you know, regular economic growth would be a boon for both energy and for more traditional value plays. That was exactly how the first two and a half, three months played out. And then, like you said, then it was just this trading range of just chop. Um, and if you pull up the Russell 2000, you can see what I'm talking about. Again, it's not a perfect proxy for, you know, the value fund that I run. But um, you just see this range just up, down, up, down, up, down. And, and again, it shouldn't be any surprise to me. But, but what was incredible is looking at the magnitude of some of the moves on nothing, on no, to both sides, up, down. I mean, you're just seeing massive swings in individual names. Intraday, right? Mega caps trading in 5 7 8% daily ranges. Um, what do you attribute that to? We'll start with you, Marcos, but it was on my list to, to, to ask both of you this. I put out a tweet earlier today where I said, look, I get it. This has been going on for a while. These mega caps swinging like they're mid and small cap stocks. Uh, it still is staggering, though. You know, you look like a move at Tesla today. Tesla was basically up a Ford today alone, right? 
and, and, and everybody's like, everybody acts like that's normal. And you're like, well, guys, I, I know that all of you Tesla fanboys think it's the greatest thing in the world, but go look at the underlying de- re- details of both businesses and then explain to me how you don't fight, you know, that it's not jaw dropping to you that these things are swinging. And it wasn't just Tesla, you know, Nvidia had some wild days. Apple had some wild days. Um, what do you got? What do you make of that? And, 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 you know, increasingly to me, it looks like a market that really the fundamentals and cash flows are an afterthought. I'm not really sure what it's focused on. Um, you know, and it's not like, well, I was going to say it's not like garbage companies are getting valued great and good companies are getting driven into the ground. But that is what hap- that is what's happening. Um, maybe all those things are disparate and disconnected. Maybe they are all connected. I'm just kind of, you know, pulling out the highlights and the things that caught my attention this year. First with you, Marcos, what, what do you make of that? Did you notice that? And what do you attribute that to? Have you ever seen anything like it? Put, 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 put some, if you could, add some context to, to those, those things I was pointing out. Yeah, I think I'll be lying if I tell you if I knew why things move all the time. I don't right, at all, right. actually. For example, Tesla moved 7% today. I don't know why. I really don't. Uh, what I sense is that we don't know how much things are worth anymore. <laughs> and this comes really from something we have discussed in other conversations, other podcasts, that the price of money is being distorted, right? Yeah. With QE, with extremely low rates, uh, the price of money is being distorted, is being, quote-unquote, manipulated, if you will. Uh, And that has downstream consequences for all the assets, like all the assets are ultimately value on the price of money, which is interest rates. Now, when we get into that realm where those markets are not, the bond market is not sending a reliable signal because they are being, quote unquote, controlled by the central banks according to whatever policy goals they they, they have. And they're not reflecting the real cost of capital. There is real financial um Restrictions. I mean, what's the, what's the word for it? Um, repression. Repression. Exactly. It's financial repression, right? So all these things are repressed. A lot of people are forced to be buying these things against their will because how the laws are written, right? So, for example, if, if we look at Europe, um, banks are really kind of force-fed those bonds because they cannot buy something else. Right? They're not allowed to buy something else or they, have, they get punitive regulation if they buy something else. So basically, they end up buying these things to some extent against their will. In the U.S., is less extreme, but it's still the case. Right, So you have a lot of these reluctant buyers of the bonds. Um, they're repressed. It's like they're really in a cage. Uh, so, basically, so the market clears on a price that is not a natural price. Uh, and that really sends shockwaves throughout the whole system. Uh, so that's one thing. And then the other thing, we have all these hundred billion being printed every month, right? So there is this like ocean of money flying out there. Uh, it needs to go somewhere. Uh, the, the money that is free to not go into bonds will go into stocks, real estate or other assets. Um, is things are being bought because the money is there and then you cannot buy, you don't buy the bonds because they're not reflecting the actual 
cost of money. I mean, there is premium. Let's say you don't have to buy the bonds. You don't buy the bonds, so you do something else, and that means that prices of stocks are completely disconnected to any kind of rational valuation if that ever existed. But um, it's no longer about the value of this company. It's about what do we do with the money? Where do I put it? And then, so there is no rebalancing mechanism. It's not a, it's not a market that is normal. In a market that is normal, when things get too cheap, people buy them. When we get some expensive people sell them, but it is like we, we lost that mechanism um, because there is no real way of getting out of the financial repression. So on any single day, things can happen and it was not rational yesterday, so there's no need to be rational today, right? It's like we really don't have a balancing mechanism. So it's really, really odd from that perspective. Now, that's why, that's, sorry, if I, that's why it's, I got the view wrong that I thought the, the mega caps will lose relative weight in the market and actually gained because when you don't know what to do with the money, those stocks are almost like bonds, but with better risk reward because at least you can, you can make money capital gains basically. So they have a yield that is very similar to the bond to the government bond market, but still you can get growth. Uh, and they're equally as safe at the end of the day, uh, so you get you get better value for your money. So that a lot of the money that would have been to going to bonds went to these mega caps. Um, there's also and there's also the there's also that career risk part of it too, right? Like for instance, if you have a rough year and your top four holdings are Amazon, Apple, Google, and Microsoft, no one's going to blame you. You know what I mean? Like yeah, no, that, that, that adds to the to, to the dynamic. Right. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's Chase. What do you so get your thoughts on this? Um, just because, like I said, from an economic standpoint, I don't know what it means. I don't know if it means anything um, from somebody that is a practitioner and, and works in this market on a day to day basis. Like I said, if for nothing else, it's just been jaw dropping. Um, it, I continue to refer to it as the Alice in Wonderland market. You know, you can believe as many as, what is it, six impossible things before breakfast. Um, you know, just when I think I've seen it all, you see something again, you know, a move, a single day move where you're just like, holy smokes. This is like, you know, to borrow a parlance from, uh, um, you know, the big Lebowski. You know, man, this this isn't nom. There are rules here. You know, you catch yourself saying that, and yet then then you watch the way the market moves. And you're like, apparently it's not. Apparently it is nom. Apparently there aren't rules here. What what do you make of that? Am I? Is there anything to make of it? Just how did you interpret that action this year? Yeah. So, and I, I'm kind of right there with you guys. Like I I think I got that wrong. And if you go back to really the sort of early days of the pandemic, you started seeing equal weight do really well. Uh, and then that kind of all unwound in 2020. And then, you know, from early 2021 to like, like, like kind of summer, like June, it just collapsed. And then, you know, since then it's done decent, but yeah, like I would have expected equal weight to do, to do better than it did value to do better than it did. Uh, small caps to do bad, better than they did versus kind of those generals, uh, the, the giant, the giant tech names, just just from like a, a the, you know having the inflation uh, and, and growth kind of take a, a you know a, a big a big jump higher 
Um, so I got that wrong as well, but I don't, you know, I don't, it's not, I don't, just don't trade a lot of, you know, kind of indexes versus each other or anything. So it didn't hurt me that despite having that view. Um, but when it comes to those mega, mega cap tech names and them just, you know, kind of dominating and you, you look at how quickly or, you know, how, how long in history it took us to get to a, a $1 trillion market cap company. And then how long it took to get that, you know, for Apple to, to jump from one to two trillion. That It's just, that this is just stunning to see that Cause you, you were talking about, you know, these, these things moving $50 billion in a day, like it's nothing. And it almost feels like at that point, this is, this is like a game, not, not like yeah. real life and, re, and real money, um, which is kind of you know, apropos for 2021 in general to the gamification of the stock market. But, um, but really, I, th- I think yeah, I remember a hundred billion was a lot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like kind of, kind of. That used to be the real top money. Ten companies, they're real money. Like hundred billion was <laughs> yeah. really big. And you and you and you'll see them tack that on in a session and a half. And, and that's one of the things that I look at it. it. It really defies the logic of markets. And Chase, I want you to continue. I don't mean to cut you off, but you sit there and go, okay, if this market isn't unhealthy, how is it possible that a company that size, in the space of a session and a half, the market can't decide? You know, there's a hundred, hundred twenty billion dollars of wiggle room in the valuation. Like, like if a market is a price discovery mechanism, doesn't that action alone prove something's broken? Yeah, from that standpoint, yes. I mean, it, it's kind of like this weird inputs become outputs like scenario at, at some point. Um, but what I was going to say is I really think this comes down to more than anything is this passive. I mean, you get into a scenario where so much passive is operating off of market cap that it just becomes a giant self-looking lollipop where the biggest stuff gets the most money and it becomes the even biggerest stuff. And then it gets more, even more money. It just becomes very like a self-reinforcing uh, loop. And obviously that's really dangerous uh, because it builds in significant fragility in the market because the, at some point, almost the only thing that matters to the broad market and to all the people indexed to it, it, it is those, those few biggest names. And that's really dangerous. Not, not to mention all, all of the concentration of, of wealth and power and everything that, that comes along with, with, you know, the top five, 10, whatever companies having just inordinate um, um, amounts of capital uh, and on the flip side of that is all the all of the stuff at the bottom that's not getting the capital and, and the, their equities are incredibly undervalued. You've talked about some of the companies you know in your portfolio that are just crushing it on you know growth and earnings and they're just doing everything right. The numbers look great and then the and the stock's down and and you, you kind of see that in energy. I think a lot of people realize you know hey energy was you know kind of the best sector for 2021. That seems like it's doing great, but you chart you chart energy against those those big tech stocks and they haven't even broken their downtrend really yet so but that has significant consequences because if your equity is significantly undervalued and you just happen to be a really important industrial sector that the whole world depends on but you you know your stock isn't making any money you have no reason to go to go increase production capacity and i think that's one of the problems we're going to have moving forward is we don't, we're not going to have enough of really important industrial products, not just oil, but a lot of other things. Uh, and part of, part of that's just because passive relegated their equities to the bottom and they don't get any money. And th- again, that that's just as self-reinforcing as the tech stocks getting all the money just on the flip side and has its own set of kind of ugly consequences in the end. 
I, I you know I'm reminded in Marcos you could probably add some color into this but it it very much reminds me of reading about um um oh I'm just blanking out Julian Robertson um closing his fund in 1999 um meaning that you get to a point and, and we've and look and we've we've you know tried to dance through the raindrops without getting wet and by God's good grace, we've we've been fairly successful at it this year. Um, but it really presents a confounding issue for a money manager, and it's one that I've been wrestling with with some time. And, th- and this year is notwithstanding, which is um, here's this: if I'm being an investor, right? If I am buying future cash flows at a discounted price and doing my job theoretically, it would indicate that I should be buying these things. However, if I want to perform, which is how I retain clients and how I get new ones, um, that's pushing you in the exact opposite direction, right? And, you know, and I obviously haven't spoken to Julian Robertson about this personally, but um, I'm not going to lie to you. There are times where I thought, you know, if I was wealthy to the point right in after work, I might have I might have shut the value fund down and just said, we'll bring it back in another time Be- because it it really is. It really is confounding. Like you said, Chase, I've got, I got companies that I have owned this year where we're up 25 or 30% in the stock, but we bought them with like a 15, 16, 17 price to earnings ratio. And the only thing that's really happened is the price to earnings ratio has gone down to like seven, right? So their earnings are just skyrocketing. Stock just doesn't move. You know, like I said, it's up 25, 30%, but a stock like that, I mean, you know, I mean, holy smokes, 20% plus revenue growth, cleaning up the balance sheet. You know, the list goes on and on. Um, it, it really is. It really is something to to wrestle. It, it with. It is and, really odd, right? Because you have that, and then you have companies with zero revenue, right? Right. That are worth almost a hundred billion dollars, which which we should say was sort of like the 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 orbit, right? It was the golden number, a hundred billion dollars, and now there are companies with no revenues, like not 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 a little bit of revenues or negative margins. It's like no revenues. Yeah, you Yeah, you 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 yeah, you're seeing companies with fifty, sixty billion dollar market caps that have never realized a dollar of revenue. Right? I mean that's we're not even talking profit, right? We're just saying they you're like really haven't sold a single thing. Right. I I I mean we've been talking about valuations being ridiculous on the show for quite a while. What I, I don't even know what you say to these things. Like I've said before, you know, Tesla's another one you throw in there. If you've made a ton of money on Tesla, tip of the cap, man. Great. I'm not dogging you. I'm not. No, this game's about making money. I mean, you know, no, no, no disrespect. At the same time, you show me these companies and these people make these presentations. They go, it's this worth. I, look, I look at them and I'm like, look, I can't prove that you're wrong. I just. If I'm using your metrics and looking at these things in a traditional value or traditional way, I would just sit there and say, you know, like, uh, you know, I look at Tesla. Is Tesla worth $2,000 or $200 a share? I can't tell you. I, I don't really, you know what I mean? I, I don't know. I, I don't really, I, I, I don't know how these things are valued. I, I just, I just don't know. Um, go ahead. You know, sometimes I think about this this way. It's like, um, so many new participants have gone into the market through the apps, free trading, uh, yeah, Robinhood, a lot of people that had not never been involved in the market before, young young investors, they are thinking about it in a different way than the people that were there before. Um, and because 
markets were harder to access. It was more of a professional crowd or like sophisticated private investor. Um, so let's say that everybody sort of like agreed to play to play football, right? Throwing the football back and forth, running, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but sort of like there was a set of rules that were followed by everybody. Uh, you could have good plays, bad plays, and then all of a sudden there is a bunch of people that coming into the field and they're playing soccer. And they're playing soccer among themselves and then you're trying to throw the football and nobody catches it. And like the thing is that you see a, you, you see a, an open player and then nothing happens because he's playing soccer and then everybody's sort of like following a different set of rules. I think the new players have been following a different set of rules. And I think GME and um, the Memstocks and this Rivian and all that stuff, these are people that openly do not care about the traditional way of looking at stocks. Uh, they have completely changed the rules of the game in the short term. Like ultimately, companies that, lo that lose money will end up going to zero because there's no other way. But as, as they say, the market can be irrational more longer than you can be solvent because when people come in playing soccer and you want to play football, it's just not going to work for you. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you like football. Exactly. It's like, it doesn't matter. These people are playing a different game. And he has to run his course, I think. It really brings up an interesting quandary. And this might be a strange conversation for a guy like me that runs an RIA to have on public airwaves. But um, it, it really, just, just being fully transparent, it brings up a really interesting quandary for somebody like me who manages retirement money. Because one of the things I wrestle with is what is prudent, right? Because what has proven to be prudent over the last five years is certainly not what we would historically have thought as being prudent. It sure doesn't go with the, the money management rules of being prudent. And one of the things that we wrestle with on a daily basis, which quite honestly is one of the reasons that our value portfolio has evolved the way it has, which is being long and hedging um, on any risks we see, just because I, I don't, I, I don't, know how to be prudent and successful in this environment at the same time. It's something that we're balancing with, you know, trying to balance on a daily basis going to chase. Um, and then I'd like you both to answer that question just cause I'm curious to hear your thoughts. How do you think you wrestle with that? Obviously you do, you, you approach it from a different angle that I do, but, um, how do you, yeah, how do you, what do you make of that statement that I, I just threw out there, which was, you know, it's hard to balance being good at the job and being prudent at the same time that those things seem to be conflicting. Um, how, how, do you, how do you compute that? Like, what, what would your, what would your, A, do you agree with that? And B, um, what do you make of that? Yeah. So I, I think, I think what you just kind of laid out sort of speaks to it well that like, Long, long but hedge whenever you kind of see risk uh because the long part i i mean i think if you just just looked at the market just you know if you just came here from mars you'd be like yeah i don't want to i don't want to own that right it, just when you, if you did the math on it you're like no thanks like if you, <laughs> but you know you've had to live the last 10 years to see that you could have you would have thought the same thing 10 years ago if you came here from mars so you, you have you, like you you reach that realization like okay well we have to be invested so then it becomes like okay, well then how do we manage risk while being invested? And that's where obviously Marcos is, uh, the, you, you know, his, his system is going to help in that process because like he said, if, if it, it, here's the wolf, it's going to get out of the way. Um, you know, your own systems where you see something kind of weird popping up, you're going to 
get long vol or you're going to, you're going to trim exposures or put on some shorts. Like I, I think that's, that's how it has to, to work. I think obviously in, in the investment industry this day and age, like the, the most frowned upon thing is to be like a market timer. Everyone says you can't time the markets. No point in trying, like just, just buy and hold. But I think we're at, we're in a regime where like you're kind of crazy not to, you know, take at least some tactical swings and, and not, not trying to knock it out of the park, but just to, to manage risk. Like whenever you see something, I mean, go, go back to COVID. Like it, that it made to me, it made no sense whenever you could see that COVID was about to get, to get weird, to just be like, Oh yeah, well I'm buying hold. Like, so I'm not going to do anything like <laughs> right. that. And just, you know, just eat a 30, 40% drawdown more depending on, you know, what you owned, you know, whereas hedging ahead of that, like obviously is something that made sense to do. Uh, so to me, like having a bit of a tactical overlay, having that, that quant overlay that, that, you know, that cares about trend and gets out of the way of bad trends, uh, just as much as it, you know, gets exposure to good trends. Like th- those things all are ways where you can have a view that, you know, like this doesn't make sense. Like these things are overvalued and, and you can, you can feel tangibly like feel the risk that's involved in and how overvalued the market is. Uh, but at the same time, understanding like it, it's just, you have to be exposed to it most of the time uh, in a significant way. So yeah, yeah. that's kind of well, why I see it really, it all comes down to just more intense risk management than you would, you would have to employ otherwise. Yeah. I was having this conversation with a client of mine that, that he, I'm just, I jokingly refer to him as Mr. Vol. The guy he loves, but he it can't get Rocky enough for him. He loves it. Uh, entrepreneur been very successful and, and he's very aggressively. Why are we hedging this stuff? I love it. Why are we hedging? And I answered him. I said, listen, if you think I've got a crystal ball, I, I don't. And I have to hedge this stuff because I'm operating. The reason we're buying it is for fundamental reasons. And um, I'm hedging it because I I have no way of knowing when fundamental reasons will carry the day or when they'll just be ignored for another six months. You know what I mean? Like it's and and I understood his frustration. He's like, well, why do we have to hedge it? You know, I want to be fully exposed. And I just said, look, realistically, I don't really know any other way to play this, right? You, you made a great comment about if you came down from Mars and looked at it, and it's just simple looking at back date test, you know, back data. You buy the market at these valuations, your returns are awful over the next 10 years, 100% of the time, right? Like, that's just, that's what's happened. Um, yet, when you look at government intervention, I mean, you know, that's why I think we've all agreed that, yeah, this thing could come down in, 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 a, in a smoldering pile of ashes any minute. Um, I also wouldn't be surprised to see the S and P at eight, the print to eight thousand before it's all done. And I'm not saying that's, you know, that I'm certainly not saying that I'm putting my money on that outcome. But it wouldn't surprise me at all. Marco's going to you um, as a guy that's run big commodity books and hedge funds and prop trading desks and all that kind of stuff. What, what, what do you make about that whole struggling with being prudent and also good at your job at the same time? Do you, do you see that issue? And is, uh, I, yeah. Yeah. Is there any other way to attack it other than the way that we are and the way that you are and the way Chase is? Uh, the short answer is no. I think Chase put it perfectly. Uh, the key is managing the risk. Mm-hmm. Now, traditionally, the prudent investor in the industry is the investor that does like the other investors do. That's what the prudent man does. He does what the majority does, right? Uh, because that's a safe position, right? If yeah, you fail, you fail better, everybody yeah, together. Yeah, yeah it, better it to fail be, conventionally, yeah. 
Exactly. You do. You you cannot. There will be no fingers pointing at you. Uh, so that's what happens in the industry. That's what the prudent people do. Uh, that's why most financial advisors are not adding much value because they just do what everybody else does because that's what the prudent thing to do is from their perspective. Um, that to me is not the right formula sometimes what the majority is doing is the right thing to do sometimes it is not i going back to the right thing to do i think the right thing to do is to do the right thing right if you will um i think the fear of underperformance of the market um is real but a good financial advisor should not be concerned about that a good financial advisor or an investor, in broader terms, should be concerned of getting adequate returns for the risk they're taking, right? Maybe the market did really well, but was the risk really worth it? It could have gone the other way, right? Um, is the risk really controlled? That's not, I don't think it's about beating the market. It's about doing the right thing. And sometimes doing the right thing will lead you to underperform. And that should be okay. Uh, because the most important thing at the end of the day is to not lose. Yeah. And it's the right thing to do so so that you don't lose, so that you can control the risk better, is not buying no revenues companies at a hundred million dollars, but so be it. Yeah. Yeah. It should I, I like to look at investment from an absolute perspective, not so much relative to the market. Right? It's like, okay, what are what are the what are the risks that I'm willing to take and the risks that I'm not willing to take? And you only do those that make sense to you as an investor. That, to me, is what a prudent investor is. And sometimes it will deviate from what the majority is doing. And I think that's okay. And some other times it will be the same. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that you kind of just laid out the genesis of our overweighting um, the energy sector in general um, was, you know, I know the risks. I understand how hard those kind of trades have been, those value-based trades, running a value fund. But it got to the point where I was looking at several of these energy companies, and it kind of just hit me. And, and trust me, guys, this does not make them guaranteed winners, especially in the short term. But it got to a point where I was looking at some of these companies, and I went, if I'm not buying these now, um, what else am I buying instead? Right? And, and if I'm buying something else instead can I really call myself an investor? Because, uh, you know, I'm looking at, again, we know that the traditional way of looking and valuing securities really isn't, you know, we've, we've discussed that at length. It's really, it's certainly not carrying the day as we speak, but it does reach a point where the extreme, the, the extremes just get so big where, you know, you're looking at these companies and going, okay, at $65 oil, you're cash flowing 35% of your market cap. You know, and, and God forbid you have $100, $110 oil. I mean, you know, it's, it's where you're like, okay, if I'm not buying this right now, what else am I buying and how do I justify buying it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and look, if, if you look at the 99-2000 bubble, how many of the tech investors that made a fortune then are still around? <laughs> Janus and how many of the investors that did the right thing then are still around, many of them, majority of them. Yeah. Like if you look at Howard Marks, if you look at Warren Buffett, if you look at all these are like fundamentally driven investors, they were, they were prudent. 
and all of them underperform. I mean, you just talked about Julian Robertson closing, right? Mm -hmm. And he was also was an, an all investor, so he's like, but he's still around, and he's still he's probably wealthier now than he was then. Oh yeah. Uh, very, very few of the people that were the headline investors, the stars of that period, are still around. And the same thing will happen with this period. The star investors that are now the masters of the universe, I can tell you 10 years from now, they will not be, majority of them. And, they, and, and there will be investors today that we don't know about that are compounding. They're not spectacular numbers because they're prudent, but they're compounding, compounding, every year, year in, year out. And then year from now, we will know about them. And the ones that are stars today, we will not, we will have forgotten them. Look, talking about Howard Marks, I was in his office a few years ago. I asked him for a meeting and he was nice to let me, to invite me to his office. And we talked about how, who are those that are in the top quintile or top percentile of investors on a quarterly basis or a yearly basis. And typically, the people that are the top percentile are those that are the riskiest investors because they basically are very aggressive and the environment happened to be one that was favorable to them, so they make a lot of money. But you will notice that many times those that are at the top of the list one year, they're at the bottom of the list the following year or two years later. That it's no use. I mean, it's useful for them if they have performance fee, they crystallize it and they're wealthy, but it's not that great for their investors. And then there are those investors that are never at the top of the list, but they're always in the top half of the list every year. And every year they're on the top half of the list. They never make the headlines. But if you look at what the list would be on a 10-year compounded, these people, these investors will be at the top of the 10-year list because yeah, they like were able to compound. Like a tepper, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, they have good years every year, but it's never uh, knock the lights. Yeah. It's never out of the park year. They're always somebody better on any given year. But that's not really what it counts for a long-term investor or a prudent investor. What really counts is the long-term compounding of good returns every year. Now, good returns every year sometimes are lower than the market return that year. But that should be of secondary importance, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think everybody will be like, oh, yeah, bounce back. And that, that to me is beside the point. But, you know, a perfect, anal uh, perfect analog of that is, you know, the combination of our value portfolio and your algorithm. And about 85 to 90 percent of the heavy lifting was done by the algorithm that year. But, you know, the, the, the balance of those two portfolios when averaged together uh, produced like 26 percent returns in um, – yeah. Uh, or would have produced 26% returns in, in, in 2019, right? And then, and then you underperformed the market by 4% that year. And then, you know, two and a half months later, the market's down 36, and those two portfolios are down 11 and a half. You know, I, 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 you know and I'm not just preaching my book, but I, I think that that's, that's going to be kind of a microcosm of what we see, you know, that, that in order to have the better long-term returns, you're going to have to underperform at times. Yeah, look, I give you a real-time example uh, without naming names. Uh, last year, there was a, a big hedge fund that had a fantastic year. They were like 55% up for the year. This year, um, they were actually, let me tell you the numbers, they were 57% last year, I mean 2020. And so far this year, they're down 35%. There you go. 
So uh, both combined, they are 2% up in the, in the two years. Now, these people made headlines last year with a 57% percent. 57%, the, the, the guy that made 10% last year and 10% this year didn't make any headlines. But the, the second guy is up 21%. And the first guy that was the master of the universe, they gave you 1% a year. The second guy is way more valuable. And the second guy probably underperformed both years. God bless you. Vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis the stars. But God bless you, sir. 10% a year, what's what, what the prudent investor does. Yeah, yeah. That it really, really reminds me of like Moneyball in sports where, you know, the, oh, the yeah. A's were, would, would get a guy that was maybe like looked funny playing or was overweight or something. Like just because of like something weird like that would get, it's like really undervalued and, you know, maybe it didn't hit a bunch of flashy home runs, but was consistently hitting doubles and getting on base and, same thing. Like if you get on base with a walk or a single, it's the same difference, but that's not the way people viewed it. A single was way better than a walk is just kind of the inherent way everyone viewed it. But at the end of the day, like what, you know, the, the end product is what matters. And that's why they were, that's why they were able to compete with a, a minuscule payroll. It's so, it, 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 it is so true. And, and guy, again, guys like us who have dedicated, you know, significant portions of our life to this, we know that that's true and inherently true. Well, one of the, one of the most nefarious parts, I don't even know if that's the right way to put it, but um, one, of, one of the most toxic parts to it though, is it, it, I understand for the less educated retail investor, how they look at that and come to a different conclusion, right? Like, no, this is when the sun's shining, man, you should be making hay. And I just, I just don't think that they, I, I and it just, it, it's the result or, or excuse me, it, it results in a lot of pain eventually, but you look at, you know, you're trying to explain to them that no, 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 you know, the basic thing, Kathy would have up 135% a year. And again, not trying to beat up on her, but people are like, Oh, it's cause she's so good. You go, no, 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 that, that that's, that's not why you're up 135% a year. You're up 135% a year. Cause you took exorbitant risk, right? Bottom line. I mean, that's oh, often the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, there are exceptions, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, uh, Mark Hart, you know, putting that 350 or something percent return that he had in like 2006 betting on uranium. Um, you know, you look at that trade, it seemed risky at the time, but, you know, that was a, that was a smart economically backed trade. Um, but when you're looking at a pile of stocks like that, that, and, and just using her as a microcosm again, because there's so many other people out there doing the same thing. Um, you're just betting on multiple expansion on stuff that's already crazy expensive. And, and, you know, that can reverse and does reverse all the time. Right. Um, and I don't think those investors realize that, you know, like you said, well, up 50 down 35 this year, I'm still up 15. No, no, you're not. You're, you're flat. Yeah. Right? A lot of these managers is like a quarterback that are doing throwing Hail Marys every single pass. Right. Yeah. 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 It's like one will connect and it will be in the newspaper in the news. I'll say, and you, People will say, what a great quarterback. And you know what? Maybe it was lucky we just connected that one. But they're doing that all day long. That's not a good quarterback. Yeah. This yeah. is what's happening here. Is that the environment is such that you complete a Hail Mary and then you're a star. But really, it's not the best strategy. Yeah, because the timing is going to be off. You know, I, I, I'm a big fan of Russell Wilson. But going, you know, anytime, I, guys, anytime I can use an analogy that combines football and finance, you know I'm going to be all over this. But uh, 
you know, it kind of reminds me of him. Their offense has epically struggled this year, and he has been solely reliant on the deep ball. And if he can't hit the deep ball, they can't move the offense, right? And that's the problem. Investing is the same way. You're relying on the deep ball. You're going to go through a dry spell. And the problem with going through a dry, dry spell relying on deep balls is they don't typically end well. Right, it's the one trick pony. Yeah, and when the one trick Problem. wears out, it ends up being a pretty ugly conclusion, right? And you think of the deep, you know, you miss a five yard out, chances are the ball's going to land out of bounds. You know, you start missing deep balls down the down the seam of a defense, you're probably looking at picks, pick sixes, and you know what I mean. Like it's and, and investing's the same. If you take enough of those shots, you're going to get hammered. Um, it 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 just won't keep up. Um, anyway, so moving on now, I, one of the things I really want to talk to you both about, cause Marcos, I, I, you know, I know that you're, you run a quant and that's the way people think of you, but you've also got extensive background in, in commodities trading and, uh, and value investing chase. Obviously that's what you're focused on. One of the most interesting sectors, and I've been talking about it on the show for a long time, I've talked about it with both of you extensively, is the energy sector. I think it's a very unique situation, and I want to dig into it because, again, I think that our three perspectives are coming at it from all different angles. Um, so, Chase, let's kind of start with you. Where are we at in the energy situation? Um, you know, truthfully, I've been a little bit surprised that energy is – been hanging around the way it is. I, I kind of thought that supply shortages and inventory shortages would become more aware. The problems would be a little more acute by now. Um, wh- where are we at right now in the setup? Wh- where, you know, are we further away from the energy crisis scenario that we thought was possible? Are we closer to it? Kind of give us an update from, from top to bottom on where we sit in the, with the energy outlook in the world today uh, over the next six months. Sure. So starting with oil, if you look at U.S. or OECD inventories, they're essentially back to 2014 levels. And that 2014 is is when the oil market broke. That's when we went from kind of like a normal range of, of supply to having way too much supply. And that's kind of what broke oil. That's And we've been broken since. That was the first that's break why, in shale, right? That was the, the first yeah, big bankruptcy really took wave off. in shale. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that's when shale kind of just exploded higher in, in production so that you all of a sudden had to – the world just had too much oil. Right. And we were slow to, slow to react. So you know, oil's kind of struggled ever since. And all of a sudden, we're back to those levels. So it, now things get really interesting. And for whatever reason, most folks kind of are predicting uh, the supply issue to not be so tight the way it has been the last year to kind of really firm up and go back into like a surplus – uh, really for the most of 2021. And I think that is just completely off base. And I, I think, again, this is like this is a situation where people, and I, I felt this way all along, that I've, the entire time I've been an oil bull, that people are underestimating demand and overestimating supply both. Um, people think people think OPEC is good for every barrel that they say they're going to produce. And there's significant evidence that they can't produce that much. Now, eventually they can get there, but you're, you're talking a lot of time and a lot of investment for a lot of these OPEC countries to be able to produce what they already say they can, you know, now forget what they say they can produce 10 years from now. Um, that's the kind of the main driver on the supply side. N- not, not to mention the U S shale comeback has been very, very slow. Uh, so not Chase, OPEC is that a, growth. I don't mean to interrupt you, but, but I've noticed that 
Um, is that a policy thing by those countries? Is that is that one of the thing is, is do they always want to sort of be erring on the side of the market thinking they can bring more oil to market? So the surprises create price increases opposed to price drops. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is it is that is that part of the OPEC way of handling things? Is that part of their strategy or is it just coincident? I mean, wh- how do you explain the fact that they're all, you know, like, cause you, everybody's under the impression that, you know, uh, OPEC is increasing supply at 400, what is it? 400,000 barrels a day equivalent or something like that. Um, yes. I think it was last, it was last August. They didn't increase at all. Right. They, they, yeah. They've, they've definitely really struggled with it. There, there are some countries that ha- have been able to, to make significant comebacks and then others that, that have not. And, but even even like Saudi Arabia, like the, the number they say they can they can get to, is really high. It's something they've they've had maybe did for like one month, and then if you go back and look at that month, their like kind of onshore inventories dropped a lot. So it looks almost like they gamed it, as if some of their production numbers maybe weren't real. That they just you know un- unloaded some inventory and, and acted like it came out of the ground. Uh, so there, there, there's just a lot of weird stuff that that you can find like that. And then there's other, you know, there's other places like Africa. Just almost all the African countries in OPEC just really struggling to to, to make a comeback. Um, you know, Libyan production kind of comes offline like once a year just because that it's kind of perpetual civil war. Um, so, but but then you look at all these models that are saying like, oh, we're going to be back into a surplus. And if you you know look at the inputs, they're just basically saying like, oh yeah, OPEC's good for every barrel they say they're gonna they're gonna add. So. I, that has to be true for for oil to not go up, you know, moving forward, unless demand disappoints. And again, I just think, I think that I think the demand assumptions are even worse. Uh, you look at places like like India and China, where demand has been significantly higher than 2019 uh, for most of this past year, and even in the U.S. last week, the kind of like weekly number for demand was the highest it had ever been for that week. So you essentially. Wow. Even with the threat of the the variant, one of the things that we've realized is that with every rollout of any new variant or or threat, you've seen a a softening economically response. Right. And it makes sense. The people that are freaked out, they don't go out as much. They don't spend as much. You're you're telling me that even in the midst of the Omicron thing, we had a record uh, oil demand here in, in that month. Yes, for wow, it was it was kind of like not 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 this past week, but the week before that. The, the kind of an implied demand figure um, that that's yeah, miles driven have been you know really really solid. Uh, so d- demand has has made a significant comeback. We were, we're back to around a hundred, which it's it's kind of hard to remember now for some people. But e- even even six months or a year ago, there were there were like significant players in, in this in this market like really well-respected outfits saying that we would never get back to 100 or we you know we had already peaked or we you know maybe we'll peak at like 105 in 10 years or something like that well we're right back to 100 already and we could be up to you know 102 103 some 104 something like that you know as soon as 2022 that's that's very possible um and so that so that's oil. I, I think oil is headed higher. Obviously, it'll it'll have hiccups the way it, the way it has a couple of times this year. But I, I think it has to hit a lot higher because just the pure su- supply and demand fundamentals. But um, the, nat- natural gas is super interesting. So that that is already a, a genuine energy crisis. Um, it just happens to be concentrated very in a, in a very focused manner in, in Europe at the moment. Um, Europe went into their the winter with not enough gas and you know they're they're starting to really feel the effects of that and 
I, I've shared a chart on Twitter recently, but they they went into 2020, 2020 to that demand season with the most that they've had in the last decade. And then now they have the least they've had in the last dec- decade by a lot. So they have their, their gas inventories are 58% full right now. And that's with, you know, them having to get all the way through January and February and March, sometimes February or, uh, you know, April can even be continue to draw down. So this time last year, they had about 73% full and they're at 58% full. And that's, that is very significant and because of that. Their natural gas price is the equivalent of over three hundred dollars for you know for a barrel of oil. That's that's how much it is. And their electricity prices all over the continent have gone up anywhere from like five x to like fifty x for electricity. So people are paying just completely absurd amounts for electricity and and for natural gas at the moment. It's it's and, and it's a crisis in part because it's taken off the production of really important things like fertilizer and, and aluminum and you know, additives to diesel fuel. Like there, there's so many industrial uh, producers that it just makes no sense for them to operate with the input prices at these levels. So it's either they get a subsidy or they just shut down or at least limit their production. And I, that's one of the things that really makes this a significant crisis in my opinion. Um, in the U.S. And Chase, is it fair ahead. just to, just to make it streamlined so so everybody really understands? Um, and we've mentioned this before, but and, and correct me if I'm not, if I'm missing. But what I think I hear you saying is that historically in in oil markets, there's the old adage: the thing that cures oil, high oil prices is high oil prices, meaning that as the oil price goes higher, production climbs right alongside of it. Pretty soon, the market is oversupplied and price drops. Right. Well, in this market, even though the price is going higher the supply is not tracking it like it typically has. As a matter of fact, it's been stubbornly low. And so if it's, I mean, this is my perception, so it sounds like this is also what you're saying. There's this general misconception out there, well, you know, those higher prices have met with greater production, and you're looking at it and going, well, not really, not this time. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think I think it is. And um, it, and it's gas is an interesting market because it, it's recently become kind of a global market, but traditionally kind of isn't. So Europe doesn't produce much, uh, especially the Eurozone. They don't produce much uh, of any natural gas. So they essentially get it from Russia, from Norway, and the rest they bring in via LNG for the most part. And obviously Russia's not giving them as much as they used to. Norway doesn't produce uh, as much as they, they used to even. But they, they, they're trying to ramp up because, I mean, obviously the prices they're going to get are, are worth ramping up. Um, and then they're, you know, getting as much LNG as they can get from, from the U S but there, there's limits on that. We, that's, that's a very new, new technology. So it, it is very difficult for supply to respond the way you, it's, it's not as elastic as, as so many other markets are. So supply can't respond. So really the only way to, to tackle that is, is de- demand destruction. And so far you, you have a lot of su- subsidies, uh, where like, the government's helping people pay their electric bills and things like that. So that you're not going to get demand destruction as long as you do that. Um, or, you know, they're helping plants stay open by paying some of their bills or whatever. So until the price price will find the, the spot where demand destruction happens though. Uh, and, and that's kind of why price has gone so, so crazy uh, with gas in Europe is because it has to go find that demand destruction spot to equalize the market. 
Well, I mean, Uncle Vladimir is going to come to the rescue, though, right? He's going to flood that pipeline. And he's going to send him a bunch of natural gas, and it's going to be kumbaya, and everything's going to be fine, right? Yeah, maybe if NATO, you know, backs out of every country within uh, 500 miles of the, the border. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing about that one, Chase, is you and I were discussing that, and I was looking at this situation, and I am not Henry Kissinger, <laughs> not even close. Um, you know, I do not have an extensive background in foreign affairs, but just what you know of Vladimir Putin and, and, you know, that Russian approach in general, it just seems to me like I jokingly put out, I think, I think it was maybe to you or somebody else, but it was, I, I kind of felt like Putin was Ben Affleck in Goodwill Hunting, you know, where they're talking, he did, he did, he stands in, in the interview for Matt Damon and he goes, you know, retainer, you know, he wants his retainer, right? He won't talk about anything. Else. And I kind of feel like that's where Putin is with the pipeline. Like, Hey, Vladimir, can we get some natural gas pipeline? You know, just he, he, the guy has no incentive to give. He wants that infrastructure plugged right into the heart of Europe. And you and I were saying he wasn't going to give on the pipeline. Now you hear reports coming out that the existing pipeline is like down to a trickle. And Russia is saying that domestic cold temperatures are the reason for that. I, yeah, I, I think you posted that story. So I think it's I think it's a combination of a lot of stuff when it comes to this. So part part of it's just pure like geopolitics. Like he him. So if he if he really does want to invade Ukraine, having maximum leverage for na- over natural gas will be very important to him not getting sanctioned to death or you know putting up anyone putting up a real fight. But part of it too is like that Europe's trying to back away from long-term contracts for, for Russian gas. And he badly wants long-term co- contracts. So that's part of it. He's trying to get them to give him long-term contracts. Obviously he wants the pipeline approved without bending over backwards for all the European laws, I, I would assume. Um, but also, yeah, the, the geopolitical thing. So, but you put it all together. I mean, he, when it comes to this, he has the leverage. Like if you don't have the gas, then, then you either ruin your economy with the high prices or, People get really cold or you have to shut down, you know, significant parts of your industrial economy. So you you either kill your own growth, like, and have a really nasty recession, people freeze to death, or you find a way to get the gas. And, like, you can pretend that you have the leverage on the other end of that, but I think it just, if you just look at it, you know, just kind of examine that, it's pretty obvious that that Putin has the leverage in that scenario. Well, and that's the other interesting thing to me, too, is because this isn't just a short-term squeeze. Like I've pointed out, even let's say they get through the, these winters without serious issues and they're able to you know, get by, for lack of a better term, on fumes. Um, they got to buy a heck of a lot more in the offseason to be ready for next winter, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the amount they would have to buy is just shocking. And, and, it, and that's one of the reasons, like the, in the U.S., we've, we haven't been cold the way Europe is. We, we've been really warm in November, December, but our gas prices have have done reasonably well. And that part of that's just because our demand and has, has stayed really high and, and just our LNG exports are, are like at such a high level that even though we're producing a lot in, in the U S we're pushing off so much of that kind of excess that we don't get to like really feel it and have $2 gas the way we used to, because that, that arbitrage opportunity to go from, you know, the prices you get in the U S to the, whatever they are, 20 X and in, in Europe, you know, like that, People, people were going to work overtime to get new export terminals and, and ships going to, to arbitrage that unbelievable opportunity. So switching over to Marcos, Marcos, you, you have a really interesting perspective on this because you're not, again, you're, you're working on the algorithm. You're, you're, you're on the quantitative side now. But you have uh, several war stories. 
that's another thing I was specifically asked about is we got to do a little, a little session, a little, little segment on, on war stories here. Um, that was, that, that was what the folks asked for. So, uh, but anyway, you've got countless colleagues that you traded with and managed money with on the commodity side. You ran the commodities desk for a big hedge fund. Um, you've done it inside of banks, prop desks. You, you've, you've got an extensive background in commodities and you also happen to be spending a significant amount of time in Europe. So I would love to hear your thoughts on the whole situation. Uh, what you see, how critical you think the shortage is and based on your experience and knowledge and, and talking to the contacts you have in the industry, um, just your whole lay of the land, how, how, how you see this scenario and how you think it's most likely to unfold. Sure. Um, so I'm not as closely following it like Chase is. So I'm not, especially on the demand side, uh, that uh, I have more of a general perspective. Uh, so I'm not completely up to date on everything. But there are a couple of things that are interesting. Um, especially on the oil side, um, I think the demand in the U.S. is going to be robust, as Chase said. I have more question marks about demand coming from China, though I think that given the desire of the Chinese people to buy cars will continue to be robust. In Europe, it can be a little bit more complicated because if people are spending all their money in power and gas, they may not have, and they go into recession, they may not have as big of a demand for oil. So that's a question mark. But I think the real bull case for oil is the demand, is the supply side. And generally speaking, the biggest bull markets in commodities are always driven by the supply. And same thing for the biggest bear markets. I think that supply is the real question mark when it comes to getting the big moves. Uh, if there is a shortage, prices will go to the moon, literally, like we're seeing in Europe right now. Uh, and, and when there is excess supply, I mean, you can have all the demand you want. The prices will be very, very low. Uh, so from that point of view, I had a conversation with uh, the head of trading at a bank in London. Uh, they are not in commodities right now. They were in the past. They want to go back into commodities. And um, he and I had a little meeting um, and he was telling, he was asking me, so what do you think? How, how you, what are you seeing? And I said, look, one of the things that I think there's a lot of opportunity and there's a few people that are doing this profitably is financing new energy projects like oil and gas in particular because um, the economics are very good right now and what you can do is finance the either the producers or even the trade houses that don't have as much capital but they have a lot of projects right they have and and they you finance that as if you are financing a builder of a house, right? The builder um, is good at building the house. Like these trade houses are good at developing and building commodity projects, but they don't necessarily have a big balance sheet, but you do have a big balance sheet. So what you can do is just lend them and then uh, they will lend to the developers and they will invest and basically you get a markup on that. And he said, yeah, I can see that, but that is not going to be possible. And I said, well, what happens? He said, we have a PR problem, and is that our holding company, so this is an investment bank, they have a, a bank, a bigger bank as, an invest, as a holding company, they say they, don't, they will never let that go through. That is an image problem. 
Uh, and that was coming from the horse's mouth. It's like the people that have the money, the people that can have the balance sheet to be able to finance these projects, they themselves can see how an interesting investment that would be. But because of ESG, because of the climate change, because of green, because of that, they cannot be seen as financing fossil fuel projects. Now, ultimately, this is going to lead to a supply crunch because there is no economic response to higher prices or higher returns. It just doesn't not it does not matter. The people that could do it and make good money, they recognize they can make good money, but they do not want to do it for other reasons. So that I thought it was a very very interesting conversation. It, it's uh, so it, it's so odd to me though, Marcos, because this is not it, this is not up to like this isn't subjective, right? Energy demand is what it is, and energy supply is what it is. I, I'm sure you saw this, but J.P. Morgan put out a note earlier this week, maybe it was late last week, where it said their analysts estimated that um, you needed 750 billion dollars of capex in the energy uh, sector over the next eight years to meet 2030 projected demands. You're currently negative capex, right? That that 750 billion is gonna get met. Right, it has to. The yes, question, I mean, I haven't seen the report, but the players are not acting rationally from an economic perspective. Obviously, they're acting irrationally according to their incentives, but those incentives are not economically economic driven. It's not. Um, so, uh, if if we look at the market as okay, they're economically driven players. They they may not be in this particular case, and they may have a different agenda, literally. But yeah, we're right. But won't but won't price dictate that? Like because at some point in this business, it just seems to me that those morals or those those preferences go out the window when you're getting eaten alive by inflation. S- uh, supply continues to dwindle because nobody's putting any capex into it, and you're at 150 to 200 WTI. It will change. Definitely will change. Uh, there will be two things happening. Uh, one is that people will rebel against high prices, and it will no longer be acceptable. Uh, I think, it, for example, things like carbon. This is another thing that we said. Is like he was looking into getting into carbon, financing green, green projects, and stuff. And like one of the dangers of green of carbon is that if the price gets too high, because it's, a, it's an artificial market, uh, politicians will do things to without saying. Uh, to reduce the price of carbon, so that's a that's a tricky one because it's not again it's not economic incentives that are driving this. So at some point it will be unacceptable to not invest, and at some point the return will be so good that some people will say the money start will flow in. But things this is a, this is real life. Take, things take time. Like by the time prices are high enough to change this dynamic from that moment until supply comes on it may be between three and five seven years depending on what you're doing because if you look at it one of the things i've thought about is that if you look at so many of these green energy companies and you look at the market caps they've got now i know that this isn't going to happen at least not in the near future but if i was one of those guys 
I'd go out and sell a bunch of this ridiculously priced equity, and I'd go buy some of these energy projects. And, and, and the people would be like, well, you're, you're gumming up the – and you go, no, 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 no. We're actually going to use the unbelievable profits from this stuff to further – that's really, in my opinion, that's the way that we should be looking at this, right? Using the cash flow and profit potential to fuel the green energy revolution, not one or the other. But I'm looking at these companies like – I mean, think, think of the damage Tesla could do if they raised $50 billion. Think of the energy property. They, they, you know, they'd probably make more off that $50 billion energy portfolio than they will ever make selling cars. Right. Um, and then no, the that's cat- not too hard. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. We could do that <laughs> with a lemonade stand. Um, but but, you know, you're sitting there going, uh, you know, it seems to me like one of the funding sources for the green economy should be the energy companies, Should it not? I don't know, Zach. I'm just telling you what. Yeah. I so, I mean, it's kind of the, it's kind of the Norway model. So like they they have a big state owned, uh, you know, uh, energy companies and their model is basically to, hey, we're. We're not going to stop now. We're not even going to say we're going to stop in 10 years or 20 years or whatever like everyone else is doing. But what we are going to do is all the cash this throws off. A, we still need this stuff for humanity. But all the cash it throws off, like, hey, we're going we're gonna to reinvest it, you know, to, to keep getting as much oil as we need and gas as we need. But the rest of that cash we're going to throw off and we're, we're going to put that into, you know, R&D and on renewables and building out, uh, you know, you know, scaled renewables and, to me, that makes a lot more sense, as you say, than, than the way we've gone on about this, which is essentially attacking attacking the whole industry that we still depend on for essentially every aspect of modern life. Uh, that obviously doesn't make a, a lot of sense, but that's the way it's the way the way it's gone down. And, and until some things change, it's just gonna it's just gonna get worse. And that's why I bought, you know, personally, the futures out in 2025. Because to, to Marcos's point, like there are times when you can get a two, you know, or a six month to two year supply response. I just don't think this is one of those times. And, and what creates commodity super cycles is whenever you don't get that supply response. Uh, and it's pretty clear to me that this is kind of baked into the cake that it's going to take a little while on, on oil and, and it's going to take pain. Like you look at what's going on in Europe right now with this energy crisis. And, and it's funny because, because you, you mentioned the, uh, the carbon pricing and, and, we're finally starting to see that kind of come up. So they're having some emergency meetings in Brussels to say like, Hey, some of the countries are like, Hey, we got to do something about this. We got to, we got to hand out extra credits or we got to roll some of these into the future because this is just too much, like too much pain. Yeah. And, that's exactly what I was uh, talking to. Yeah, exactly. Um, to him. It's like, uh, these prices are too high. They're going to change the rules. And, and it's already, the rumblings have at least started. So they haven't done anything yet, but the rumblings of that have started. And, and obviously it's not like people, you know, people haven't grabbed the pitchfork yet, but whenever they start getting some electric bills, uh, January, February, if the government's not going to come help them with them, that, that that's going to be the case. And, and then obviously whenever you see some of these government budgets blowing out uh, because they're doing heavy subsidies, that all, just public opinion of this whole thing changes, I think. For the last five years, going super green and and you know fossil fuels are are, are evil was really easy to it was it was easy for the public to support that because it didn't cost them anything. Right. Whenever it costs whenever it costs you your way of life, like that, well, everything changes. You know. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's now now Marcos, you said change the rules, and I've thought a lot about this because one of the biggest fears I have about the trade in general or the investment or whatever you want to call it is. Um, 
Look, every single time over the last 13 to 14 years when we've run up against some of the – when we started having to pay the piper, when we ran up against some of the natural consequences of what is, in my opinion, you know, um, (laughs) extraordinary monetary policy and and fiscal responses and all the different things we've seen – the, the response has always been they, they've proven to have more tools than I thought, and they've been able to consistently kick the can. You mentioned changing rules. Um, I've struggled with that because I don't think they'd hesitate to do that if that helped them out. How does that work with a commodity? What, I, I, don't, I don't see direct lines. I'm sure there are. I don't see direct lines between you know, actions that they could take to make a meaningful impact on the price of oil? What, what would some of those rule changes look like? Do you know? I mean, on, when, when it comes to actual commodity markets, there's not, nothing, not much they can do. I was more referring to the carbon market, which is an artificial oh, market gotcha. with, with an artificial set supply. Right. But they can just say now there is more supply because uh, the, how the carbon market is basically based on allowances. So the government's have a, a, an allowance it's literally that it's that you can only buy there's only going to be this amount of credits available but they can always say by the way now there's 20 percent more or 50 percent more because it's just a piece of paper it's not something you have to get out of the ground yeah, or, or grab or like grab that. some from 2025 and you get to use them this year instead and we'll, we'll pay them back later just the same way you know they all pay back debt later uh, it, there, it, it's, 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 it's a paper market. It's not a real commodity right. carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with with natural gas and oil, you can do that. That's why we're seeing this incredible crunch. Now, the other thing that is aggravating the situation is that in Europe, there is not a free market for the most part. Like, energy prices are very regulated. And what Chase was talking about before, demand destruction, there is not not a real mechanism to achieve demand destruction. Like the real way to get that is to have people pay the actual price of the commodity, but none, none, basically very few people are doing that. It is such a political charge, politically charged um, subject that is energy prices cannot go high. So basically most of the retail prices have capped, even the industrial prices are capped and there are subsidies as Chase was referring to. And what this means is that if you're a commodity distributor, you have a contract, you're going out of business because you're buying your commodity at a much higher price than what you can sell it to. So that has two consequences, right? One, people are not consuming less because they're still not feeling the real price impact. So they're consuming as if the price was much lower. Um, so the demand does not get does not go down. At the same time, this destroys everything, all the intermediaries. So there is no suppliers. At some point, they will need to be bailed out. So government has to step in and put taxpayer money behind it. They will, they will have to continue subsidizing the electric bills. Again, taxpayer will have to do that. If they subsidize the heavy industry or chemicals, taxpayer will have to do that. And if the taxpayer doesn't do that, uh, these industries go out of business. And families run out of money, but literally, because we're not talking about the the typical price of electricity being fifty euros per megawatt hour. We're not talking. It goes from it has gone from fifty to sixty. It has gone from fifty to one thousand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Within like a year. Yeah. Yeah. 
So if your electricity bill was $500 a month, now it's 10000 I mean, yeah. it's, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is a big deal. And we're not talking about some crazy prices in the intraday power market that sometimes it goes from 100 to 1000 but it's basically for an hour because a plan went down and somebody is in a crunch and it's just an intraday spike. But Like an Enron special? No, not even that. It's just basically uh, it, this happens a lot in the power markets because it's a real-time market because there is no storage of electricity. It, it, whatever is produced, whatever is demanded has to be met by production like instantly. Uh, there is no buffer with storage, so the prices intraday can be very volatile. But power is typically traded ahead, right? And you contract power a month ahead, like sort of like in the in the power markets, a month ahead, a quarter ahead, a year ahead. Uh, so those are those prices are named, but they ahead, quarter ahead, month ahead, year ahead. Now, those sort of things are for base base load, and that is not just for one hour or for. 10, 15 minutes that it can happen sometimes intraday. It's like for the whole month, right? Mm -hmm. So just in France, the price for February, I believe, is around 1,000 euros per megawatt hour. So we went from 40, 50 to 1,000 for a whole month. Wow. And then the year ahead prices are slightly lower, but they're still like 10x what the normal price would be. So imagine a regular family that is paying $500 a month of power, which is already high in Europe, isn't um, it goes to 10,000. So your annual bill of power is 120, 120 just in power for your house heating. This is crazy. This is crazy. Now, a lot of people haven't felt it because there there is price caps. But this is going to be paid. There's no way around it. It's going to be paid by the taxpayer. The, 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 price, the, the price caps have to be eliminated because there probably will be no money to subsidize all things. Or heavy industry will have to shut down. The chemical industry destroyed because basically they have natural gas as a feedstock. So now their prices have gone up like literally 20x. So there's no way they can compete with Asia and US. It's just basically, if this doesn't stop soon, this is going to be a complete disaster. Yeah. Yeah, well... It, but and, it, because, it, again, it's just not from 50 to 60. It's just from 50 to 1,000. Well, and that's, and that's really one of the biggest... I mean, I, I think that the economic reasons there, I see all the things that you're both talking about, but one of the other things that is so interesting to me on a philosophical level, and again, this doesn't mean I'm not protecting risk. This doesn't mean that we're not going to hedge it if it violates certain lines. But, uh, there, you know, we all know there ain't no, there's no such thing as a sure thing. Um, however... If you really sit there and think about it, and, and, and at first I thought this was COVID, and then you saw the response to COVID, but uh, other than COVID, because they, they, that's, that, that, response, that response shocked me as well, but other than COVID, this is really the first issue that we've faced on a macroeconomic level, especially globally, that throwing printed money at doesn't fix. Right. It, it, so the so the playbook that we've been we've used for the last 15 years to deal with every single economic disruption, it's you're, you're shooting a BB gun at a tank. It doesn't matter in this situation. Correct. No. Yeah. I mean, that is correct. But the, the interesting thing, too, on the flip side, like this is like a very obviously a very inflationary impulse, but it's one that where rate hikes don't do much either. Right. This is like you either have this 
or you don't have it. And that, that's just, that's the current situation in, in, in Europe when it comes to natural gas. And, and the, the unbelievable part of this is despite this being obviously painfully obvious, I mean, I, I wrote about this in July and August. I, 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 there's a thread on Twitter I just, I just released that uh, if anyone wants to go look at it, showing kind of what I wrote back in, in August. Um, so, so this was foreseeable. I, I can assure you, like, this isn't like some crazy, like thing that, you know, black swan that just happened in the last month or two. But the, the, despite that, the, we're seeing a lot of nuclear plants being taken offline. So there, there's two coming offline, like literally, I think this month in Germany. So you're, you're talking, uh, it's a massive amount of base load power that's going to come off. So again, you, a, a lot of these dramatic spikes in gas and electricity um, in, in Europe have happened, especially whenever wind stops blowing uh, offshore, uh, whenever like all, all that electricity stops flowing from, from those giant windmills offshore and everything. So you get, now you're into a situation where you pull off significant amount of electricity production from nuclear plants. So like you get into this situation where the wind stops blowing and gas prices just have to go through the roof. Uh, even even more than they already are, and they're they're already at absurd levels. And those day ahead, month ahead, year ahead prices for electricity, I mean, I mean, they just they have to find breaking points, and those are going to be incredibly painful for for obviously the families involved, but the industries involved, the countries involved, and and the European Union as a whole. I yeah, but it's this... a dysfunctional market because there is no demand destruction because the the consumers exactly. are not ye- are not yet feeling. The price increases in their pockets. Yeah, you, so. you mentioned the utilities. At least two dozen utilities have gone under, and I want to say that might just be in the UK. Forget, forget the whole continent. So I think just at, in the UK, at, and they just keep rolling them up and just pushing them, you know, to a bigger and bigger one that's going to need the biggest bailout you've ever seen. Um, yeah, it's just it, it's unbelievable. What, I, I don't, I've never seen anything like it. What? You know, I'll throw this out to both of you. I, I've seen those reports. What in God's name is Germany doing? We, I, I, I've learned long, I, I learned long ago not to assume that the people on the other side of my trades are idiots. And so I say that humbly. But it, it's, it's watching Germany is one of the things that gives me pause about my bullish thesis on energy. Because I'm just like, I can't believe that nobody there sees this problem. How in the world would you be shutting down nuke plants right now? I, I can't wrap my head around that. <laughs> yeah, I... I I can't even speculate because that's how that's how little make that's how little sense it makes to me. I don't, I don't even have a guess. Mar- Marcos, can you give us some European insight here or something, man? What are we missing? It's the same reason why my friend, let's call it that, did not want to get into financing fossil fuels. It's yeah. transition at all cost. Avoid carbon, uh, but it's an extreme case of it. But it's not even carbon because there is none in the nuclear. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, Germany, no Germany is very particular about their green policies. I think the uh, the Green Party has a lot of power. Um, I think the German people want to do the right thing, uh, but for some reason, I think they're going about it the wrong way. Uh, but when you believe that what you're doing is the right thing, it's very very hard to make you change your mind. And it's only a shock, I think, that can change that. Because until now, as Chase was saying, they haven't seen any real bad consequence from it. Uh, so they've been going down the path. Until now, uh, things are going to change for sure. Now, one of the things that I'm, I hope we don't see, 
uh, but Germany is in bad shape, power-wise, energy-wise. What happens when and if they have to import so much from France? They are importing; they, they import power from France. France is in the best situation in, in, in Europe when it comes to uh, power because seventy percent of their power, roughly comes from nuclear plants, and they're not going to shut them down. No, they're investing they, another 32 it, It's funny, because they're neighbors, and one hates nuclear power, and the other one loves it. Yeah. Uh, so France uh, is big supporter of nuclear plants, the country. Germany is not. As a result, uh, Germany imports power from France most of the time. What happens when now we get into a crunch in the European space? Obviously, France is not a subject to the natural gas spike, because a lot of the power is coming from nuclear, uh, Germany is very vulnerable. Uh, if at some point Germany needs so much power from France that power prices really start to get out of control in France, um, what happens when French say, we don't export power to Germany now? When they are the two core countries of the European Union, and they make a point of being collaborative and a unit, right? When that happens, that's going to be a problem politically. It's going to be a huge problem. Um, uh, I don't know what happens then. I really don't know. But it, it could be an explosive situation, right? Where France literally sinks in Germany. Because just, they don't want to go down. They don't want to go down with them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and France, to their credit, I mean, they're they're doubling down on nuclear. I I just I can't wrap my head around it. So I don't know if that situation will ever get to that point, but the longer we have this crunch, the longer that can, that may happen, and might be might be part of the Putin's plan. I don't know. Well, but, and, and, and but it's going to create a huge huge conflict. Huge it, conflict. And I, I think the other thing that is a wild card in this is that typically, economically speaking, we're, we're so used to pain being felt and then pivots being made and adjustments being made. But uh, one of the things that I think makes this situation particularly sticky is the incalcitrant nature of these very green, you know, the extreme greeners. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean it, you know, those zero emissions at all costs type people. Um, you know, these are true believers. I, I think their pain thresholds are far higher. Yeah, the uh, problem is that, as, as we we're saying, is that even if they change their mind today, right, it doesn't get sold for years. Right. Well, that's kind of why I just look at this whole situation, and maybe it isn't in the next three months. Maybe it's not this winter. But I just look at it, and I watch the incalcitrant nature of those people, and I just sit there and think, you know, the only way this is going to get back on track is with a serious crisis. I, I just – I think that those extreme people, uh, that, that extreme wing uh, of the Green Party or the Green Party as a whole – um, I, I don't think anything is going to stop them until they get thrown out of office. And I think the only way they get thrown out of office is with energy prices way higher than they currently are. And the average person really feeling the pain. Um, cause like you said, even if you change course right now, you're still two years behind the ball, right? Or three yeah. years or more. Um, so this is brewing. I mean, it's, it, this has been going on for a few weeks. Let's call it six weeks. So if, six weeks. It's, it's not, it's early. If this lasts for six six months or a year, it's over. So, so, so let me, let me press you a little bit, Marcos, because you're not in this space anymore, but in your commodity days, if you were still a discretionary manager, a value-based manager, a commodities trader, how would you be approaching this? 
How how would you be playing it? Would you be playing it, or would you stay? You know, get, we get we would be playing it for sure. Okay. And there are a few. Uh, there are two ways of playing it. It's like who is going to benefit and who is going to suffer, mm-hmm. right? Uh, obviously, anything European big consumer of energy is going to suffer. Like anything, car manufacturer, uh, aluminium, steel, uh, all those heavy industries are going to struggle. Uh, even today, there was articles like tile producers in, in Italy are going down, right? Are going under because they use huge amount of energy for melting all the um, all the sands and the gravel that goes into tiles. And typically, their energy cost is 25% of their cost. So these things now are like multiples of that. So they are going Jeez. under. Uh, all, this, all these things are going down. Uh, on the other hand, People that have access to cheaper feedstocks will benefit, right? So, obviously, LNG shippers, LNG terminals in the U.S. I mean, they're at capacity right now, but they probably can increase their prices because the demand is gonna is just crazy. Uh, this gonna be put prices on gas globally has been doing that. So, gas producers, um, producers of chemical feedstock uh, that have access to cheap gas. Methanol, methanol or chemicals, chemical industry outside of the U.S., excuse me, outside of Europe, they will benefit because they are way more competitive now. Now, there is a complication out that if Europe goes into deep recession, what happens to demand, that's a, that's a curveball, but basically any the, the first derivative is anything Europe-based is no good, all their competitors better kind of thing. Um, so chemicals, non Non-European chemicals, auto, heavy industry, they will benefit. Um, uh, car manufacturing, all the stuff outside of Europe will benefit. And in Europe, they will suffer. Uh, I think European utilities are a sell here. Like in any other country will be a buy, but Europe is so regulated that they're not going to let them make any money out of this. Basically, they, 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 the, the shareholders of the utilities are going to be asked for money, Jeez. literally. They're going to be, because the government and say, okay, we need money to subsidize these prices. It's not coming from us. It's coming from you. Sorry, guys. That's how it is. Um, but you can't, get, I mean, you can't get blood out of a rock, man. I mean, they're, they're just going to fold up and go away. Well, yeah. That, that, that's why that's, that's why you want to sell them. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> that's a solid point. Um, um, so that, what those sort of things. Those are, I mean, the, the ramifications are complex. I think that, but that would be that. That's my first take. So, and 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 then I want to get. I want to tie this up because you both have been so gracious with your time, and we'll, we'll wrap it up real quick. We can get a couple of war stories from both of you, but. Uh, so is it fair to say, because at least from my perspective, and I could be completely wrong, but I do think that this will be the biggest market slash macro story of, of, of this next year. Do you guys agree with that? It really has the potential, I think. Okay. For, for me, absolutely. It's, it's been my focus for six months, and it, I think it will be for another six months. I, it's, just, it's, the, it's one of those things where like the spillover, like second, third order effects, ramifications. Like, like I was telling a client the other day, like I – none of us like have fully grasped like some of the some of these ripples that will come out of this you like you know you think about second third order effects you kind of identify some there's some that's kind of obvious and and you 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 know you put some plays on to 
to benefit from them. But there's going to be some you're like, oh wow, I didn't know that was connected to that. That was connected to that, and it it and the, that's where like a lot of the the scariness to me lies is some of the stuff we just even some of us that are thinking deeply about this and, and trying to make money on it, like there's things we haven't thought about. And when those things play out um, and kind of matriculate through the global economy, and there's, there's going to be a lot of interesting things happen that we just haven't gamed out. Funny story about that, Chase. So we, we um, are, I'm on the board of a privately held company that they've got uh, really incredible technology for audio. They create speakers that work off sound resonance Um and they're catching on like fire. We're talking to Microsoft, Google, um, doing deals with Bentley Automobiles. It's, it's, it's incredible technology. But um, we were having a board meeting yesterday. And because of the supply chain crunch, um, our technology on a speaker. So if you, if you were going to put speakers in a room, you'd have to use half as many speakers of ours to get better sound and better coverage. They, they've got t- more than twice the coverage ratio of a, of a regular speaker. So when you're pricing out a job like that, we always come out uh, uh, with a cost advantage on the job. Uh, but when you price us individually, right, for like, like we're working with Amazon on, on different um, uh, listing devices, like right there, uh, Echoes and things like that. Those are just one speaker solution. So we would be more expensive, not a lot. Well, one of the knock-on effects of this is all of a sudden we're less expensive by a little bit than almost every one of our competitors. And the reason for it, you talked about weird knock-on effects. And I'm going to butcher the name of it, so I'm going to try to say it. But it's the name of the material that they make magnets out of. It's like neobidinum. Not molybdenum. There's like neobidinum or neodymium or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's neobidinum. up 900% in the last eight months. 900%. So, so they're tweeters. So selling a tweeter... At their current list prices, the price of that material, because it's very energy intensive to make those magnets out of that out of that stuff. So, so if they go to sell a traditional tweeter at list price, they're selling at a loss currently because of the price of the the metals to make the magnets or the, that that material to make the magnets has gone up nine hundred percent. I like you said. I think that knock on effects are going to be completely unpredictable, and they're going to go down several more iterations. And I think people are the people are planning on. Um, so it, it, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Okay. So to wrap this up, I know you guys have lives outside of this, um, war stories, a couple, a couple trading stories for both of you. Marcos, we'll start with you. Is there a specific situation where the craziest trade you ever saw or the craziest loss you ever saw up close? Um, let's face it. You were working prop desks at some pretty interesting times in the world. Um, give us one or two of your favorite, your favorite anecdotes. And this is, Hey, I'm just doing this for the people, man. This is what the people demanded. It's the people's choice section of this podcast. So, um, just give us some good anecdotal, any, any, any really hairy war stories from your time trading. Oh, it's a little difficult out of context. Um, let me see. Um, I think one of the most epic ones must be the Volkswagen short squeeze. Oh, yeah. That was back in 2007, I believe. Uh, 2007, yeah. Um, so we saw it real time. Uh, I was not involved. Um, or this was not involved. Thanks, God. Um, my boss came out, to say, came, came out to me and said, should we sell some? 
And I was really scared. And it was, we should have said, sold someone. He said it. I said, no, uh, I don't want to get in front of this here. Uh, but actually talking to another guy that was at JP Morgan in a different desk, we went to college together. Um, he, um, he was short calls, Volkswagen. Uh, but the, I think Volkswagen was trading, I don't know exactly where it was, but call it $10. His call was like 20 or $30 euros. Uh, so he was on vacation. And they call him from the office and say, dude, this is happening. Your short calls. What do you want to do? And he said, what's the cost right now? And he said, you're down $30 million. Oh. <laughs> oh. You're down thirty million dollars in like today. What was the price of the underlying at at that point? I don't know. I mean, it went it went from something like ten twenty to a thousand. I remember the thousand. I don't remember where it started, uh, but it was that that order of magnitude. In and he moved that in like literally one day. Uh, so my friend was quick to say, "Get that out," and he took the thirty million dollar hit. Um, he still had. A massive year, but basically he lost more than one third of his whole year in an hour. Oh, that was spendy. That had to cost him personally a couple mil, didn't it? Uh, yeah, probably. That's, really um, That's why I don't sell. I, I was I was <laughs> yeah. lucky. I was lucky that I was not involved. I was scared to get in front of that. When I rem- I really remember that moment when. The head of the desk came to me and say, we're looking at it. And I said, I think we should. I was the only guy doing sing- stocks on that desk. Uh, that Everybody was doing future. So I, could, I was the only one that could do it. Um, and I said, no. I should have said yes. But that was when I was 1,000. I didn't know if we could go to 2,000 or 3,000. I mean, who knows? I mean, the guy that sold at, 1, 000, uh, at 100, they were feeling smug. And then they took 10 times on their face, right? So, oh, that that's that's that that is a complete carbon copy of the GameStop trade for us. I thought I was a br- you know brilliant. We'd been watching that thing for five years. Uh, we we're very disciplined about the structure of the trade and and how we wanted to execute it and what our levels were. It did what we want. We picked it up at ten. I dumped it at forty three. Two and a half months later, feeling like I had just you know <laughs> I mean cleaned up. Seven trading days later, the thing was ten x. You know where you're just sitting there going. God, talk about going from the outhouse to the penthouse in a hurry. Now, I'm not, I'm not, you know, if the downside of our approach is 340% pops in two and a half months, I'll take it. But just to get a trade that right and then to sell it in a disciplined way based on your targets and then to watch it 10x over the next seven days. Oh, man, that's a, it's a, like I said, that's yeah, a really- so, so, so the head of the desk, he, he didn't trade equities, but he, he was, he's a very good trader. So he had a good nose for it, and when he came, it was the, it was the right time. But I just chicken out; I couldn't do it, uh, I, especially because I didn't know where it could go, and I actually didn't have an idea what's going on. Like it was like, what the heck is going on here? Um, and uh, a friend of mine from college, he really got hurt, like big time. And like him, there was a bunch of them. But like literally, you, you lose some people lost the whole year and their jobs, right? Jeez. This guy only lost a third, but some people lost. Similar amounts, but they didn't have that PNL cushion, right? You had made ten million dollars that year, and then you look thirty in one hour. There's no way you can come up. No, I did the other one. You walk home. Hey, honey, you know that vacation house we were gonna buy? Uh, 
Let's <laughs> put put it on hold. Uh, okay. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Okay, Chase. How about you, man? Give us some give us some war stories here. Yeah. So I'll go with the pain story too. And I think I've told this story before on a podcast. It's been a long time, and I, I I don't think it was on on your show, but so back in my twenties, I did I did some day trading, and that was I was dumb. I lost a lot of money. Um, that was one particular day, and I used to remember exactly when this was, but I can't remember now. Uh, there was there was kind of a big vol event. Uh, I remember the Dow being down over a thousand points in that morning, and the the day before I had gotten long vol via a, a VIX ETF, which I don't recommend anyone play with at home. Um, so I'm I'm nailing this trade. I mean, the Dow's down a thousand, and I it, 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 at that point like. Even even in my twenties, I was smart enough to know like okay, this is probably this is probably about as far as this thing's gonna go. But the market got really liquid, and some brokers were having problems. Um, so I put in a market order, not even a limit order, a market order to get out of my trade, and another one to short vol. And I figured like okay, we're gonna we have to get some mean reversion, even if it's a couple of days away. And my orders just did not get filled. So the Dow's down a thousand, and my order's just sitting there—a market order—and nothing happens. And I th- want to say, if I remember correctly, the whole day goes by, and neither of my orders get filled. And I want to say, by the close, the the Dow's de- like either flat or only down like one or two hundred. So my, hey, I'm, I mean, I, at the time, I'm trading peanuts. You know, I'm 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 like barely out of college, and I'm I'm like a E four or something in the, in, the, in the military. So I'm like, it's not like I'm trading, you know. Know, a, a big account or something but but to me it was a significant amount of money and my broker just i just didn't fill me on my orders so not only did i give up all the gains because they didn't fill me but i didn't get any of the win from being short vol uh and that was that was kind of or long vol or yeah no short and that was kind of in that as we entered after that into like that weird like vol being under 15 like era and I never in a million years would have would have held, you know, that position into those to those levels. But that was super painful, and that was a big lesson to me that hey, like you can't just take your broker for for granted that they're just gonna fill every order and always be there to make everything happen for you. Uh, and yeah, so I never used that broker again, which uh, which probably is is easy to to imagine. But that day there was I want to say three like ma- major brokers that were having problems with with orders um that was yeah that was that was really rough i was i was super frustrated oh yeah that'll kill you man counterparty risk for those of you at home and that that's why you said it earlier chase that's why you don't sell options if you're at oh, home yeah. doing that like you know the way i look at it is if you don't know and you're still selling options you will figure it out and i would advise you take the path of least resistance and uh, learn from others' pain rather than having to put your hand on the stove yourself. You're um, tempting convexity, and that's just that's just not a smart way to to operate in the markets. Agreed. Yeah, because it's it's you know it's kind of like the value stuff that we're talking about, right? It's it's not if it's when you know you're playing those. It's you're you're bound to get caught. It reminds me of the guy that was short and vol had a small fund, 13 million of family and friends money. And what was it? 45 minutes, an hour into the trading session on that Volmageddon day, he was down 99 percent gone just liquidated um yeah it can happen well hey fellas convexity and outlaw not an enemy yeah yeah it's like what i was listening to chase i got a couple more i took my notes so 
Oh, podcast. yes, by all means. We'll have another one. Yeah. Not next, next time. Okay. Oh, shoot. I was going to. Okay. All right. Well, fellas, hey, uh, great uh, talking to you boys again, and I appreciate it. And uh, I think everybody knows how valuable I think both your insights are. And I speak with my wallet, and, and, um, and both of you are partners and uh, work with you both. And I can't, I can't recommend you both enough. And you can find more about what Chase does at Pinecone Macro. Uh, at Pinecone Macro on Twitter, pinecomacro.com. Um, and he's got several retail stuff. You know, 30, what was the entrance level one? The entrance level uh, research tool is, is what, 30 bucks a month, Chase? Something like that? Yeah, thir- 33 and nine. I have a sub stack that's a, a small piece of that for just nine. So you can okay. get in real cheap. It's, yeah, I mean, he's the only, the only analyst we pay on retainer. So I, I obviously think it's worth it. And then Marcos, people can get, get, track you down at Ascent. Uh, AscentSystematic.com, correct? Um, yes, yes. So we we have a hedge fund, but what we do for retail investors is only through Bulwark. That's right. You got to come to us, people. You got to come to us. All right. Anyway, thank you guys so much for this. Have a very merry Christmas, Marcos. I know you're going to be traveling a lot. Safe travels to you and the family. Thank Hope you. you guys enjoy yourself. Get some good rest. And um, here's to a great 2022. I, I I think it'll be anything but boring. So. Uh, Thanks again, fellas, and you guys, thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully you had a great year. Best of luck to all of you in 2022. We will be back next week. Hope you enjoyed your holidays and uh, can't wait to get rolling again in 2022. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Opinions expressed in this program are for general information purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Clear Creek Financial Management, a registered investment advisor.